you know, just little stories that were kind of anecdotes, uh, drew from the culture around him, whether it was farming or fishing or what have you. And some of them are longer than others. Some of them are literally one sentence. And so two of his parables uh, that he gave to describe the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the gospel, I want to read you two of them that basically illustrate what we're talking about this morning. And this morning, the sermon is called, The Gospel is a Person. And so Jesus gave two, these two parables that illustrate just how good it is to have discovered this Christian gospel. Listen to his words. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then he told a second one immediately after. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Y'all, this morning, Paul, he is going to tell us that he is that guy. He is that guy who found a treasure, and he has rid himself of everything else in order to buy that field. He found a giant pearl, and got rid of everything else in order to own that pearl. Paul is about to give us, in no uncertain terms, his own personal gospel pitch. He's about to lay it all out there for us from his own perspective. Listen to one of Jesus' gospel pitches here. Jesus said, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Today, Paul is going to tell us that it is worth it. That those words of Jesus, yeah, they're intense, but it's worth it. He's going to tell us that the gospel is a person. And knowing that person is worth losing everything for. No contingency, yeah, excuse me, no contingency plans if this doesn't work out. He says, this is it, folks. This is it. And keep in mind that as we read this passage, this letter was written to a group of Christians. So this gospel that he's about to lay out before us, this is for believers. Although, of course, if you are not a Christian this morning, please pay careful attention because this is Christianity 101. But it's not just for non-believers. This is for Christians who have already embraced the gospel to re-understand 
You know, it's easy for a religion that's as vast as Christianity, 2.6 billion people in the world are apparently Christians. It's easy for that to start to feel complicated. But today, in Paul's mind, the gospel that Christianity teaches is pretty simple. Let's see what he says. Look there in verse 7 of chapter 3. We'll go through 14. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we are desperate for you. We need you. We need your word. We need you to speak. Lord, we praise you that you've given us your word that can revive us. Like Psalm 119 says over and over again, revive us, Lord, according to your word. May your word do what it was meant to do this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, right, we're in the middle of Paul having been giving example after example of what it looks like to live a life faithful to Jesus in a culture that is antithetical to him. He started with the big kahuna, Jesus himself, chapter 2. He lays out the trajectory of the eternal Son of God and him emptying himself for us and then being raised to become the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But then he, he moves on and he starts offering example after example after example. He starts with his friend Timothy and his selflessness. He moves on to his friend Epaphroditus and his faithfulness. And finally, here in chapter 3, Paul is laying himself now as his final example of what it looks like to live a life faithful to Christ. 
Paul is all for imitation. You know, look at what he says in just a few verses in verse 17. He says, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You know, Paul here, he's not just giving a dry, you know, informational presentation on religion. He is inviting this church to scrutinize his life. He says, do you want to know what a faithful life to Jesus looks like? Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I do Monday through Saturday. Look at what I do on Sunday. Look at my calendar. Look at my wallet. Look at my life. It's open for you to see and see if that's not what you also want. He says, this is what a life looks like that has been fully entrusted to Jesus. Do you want that too? And what, from what we just read, you can see pretty clearly that Paul's relationship with Jesus was the most important thing in his life. Is that pretty obvious? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's the availability of this relationship, this intimate relationship with Jesus that Paul seems to put forward as the gospel. This is it. This relationship. And it sounds like something Jesus said himself. He said, this is eternal life. What? That they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what Jesus said, is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. So what does life look like when knowing Christ is front and center? Well, first in this passage, what we're going to see is that knowing Christ beats everything else. And then second, knowing Christ means a life in Christ and like Christ. And then last, knowing Christ means better days are always ahead. All right, so starting with knowing Christ beats everything else. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As a matter of personality, I'm an indecisive person. How many of you are indecisive? It's hard. It's hard to be indecisive. You know, I've, I've grown a lot in this area, and a lot of the thanks for that goes to pros and cons lists. How many of you use pros and cons lists? <laughs> How did Paul decide if it was worth it to follow Jesus? He made a pros and cons list. He took his life full of, of pedigree, of status, of performance, and he weighed it against what he had just discovered in Christ. 
you know, what he found was that each thing, each area that he had taken pride in when compared with Christ had to be put in the cons column. And for Paul, this, this had higher stakes than just you know, pros and cons. The words here, gain and loss, these are financial terms. This is like assets and liabilities or profit and loss. And notice the extremity of the contrast he makes. You know, first he, he's basically talking about what he had just referred to. You know, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, so zealous for the law that he was a Pharisee, so zealous for God that he persecuted a cult that he thought was a cult, Christianity, and so blameless under the law he checked all the boxes. And so he takes all of this, all of this performance in Judaism, and he chalks it all up as loss, detriment, liability for the sake of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He continues this pros and cons exercise. He moves on, and he says, indeed, I count everything. And that word means everything. I count everything as loss. Anything good he has done, anything bad he has done, any relationship he has, any vocation he pursues, any pleasure he discovers, everything, all of these are losses compared with, what does he say, the surpassing worth. That word surpassing, just you can't even get any more high and extreme. This is the best of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Okay, Paul, I think we get it. But no, he continues on. He says, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, that word rubbish, we don't use that word very much, uh, but what it means is filth, refuse, excrement, crap, or worse. You know, if I were a swearing pastor, now would be the time, because that's what he's doing. That's what he says. And so now we're starting to see that Paul has found something. And notice he's not really bummed by, you know, everything in his life being counted as loss. Oh, woe is me. No, no, no. In comparison, this is nothing. And so we're starting to come to grips with the fact that Paul here, just like the guy who found a pearl or or a treasure in the field, he has found something. And he's evangelizing it. There's something about knowing Jesus Christ that beats literally everything. You know, think of a a pleasure or a joy or a, a relationship 
or anything else that might bring you fulfillment and happiness. Paul says that in comparison with knowing Christ, it's a piece of garbage. It's trash. Man, can you believe this guy? It's hard to believe that he's even serious. But it's also intriguing. Like, what have you found? What is it to you, Paul, about knowing Jesus that puts everything in this category? How could you know such an experience of Christ that it blows every other joy out of the water completely? So keep in mind, you know, Paul, just like Jesus, he's using hyperbole a little bit. It's like when Jesus makes another equally intense pitch when he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anna and I used to have a cat. Her name was Lady Grey. Some of you might remember her. We loved her. We didn't mind her waking us up early in the morning before our alarms were going to go off. We cuddled her for hours every day. But then Eloise was born, our first child. Did we still love our cat? Yes, sort of. Yeah, yeah, we still liked her. But did our love for our cat compare even remotely to our love for our new daughter? Not even close. Not even close. And so, when it became clear, when we found out that Ella's head-to-toe, severe eczema, was because of our cat. We gave her away the next day. Easy. Easy decision. Compared with knowing Ella, our cat was a piece of garbage. (laughs) No, but sort of. We didn't, like, cast her out to the street. We gave her to a loving a couple that took better care of her than we did. But that's the comparison. Have you experienced the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? Does that relationship buoy you and ground you and give you true joy and contentment? Does it fill your deepest needs more than anything or anyone else? Remember, Paul is making a personal gospel pitch here, even to longtime Christians. And so, this is an invitation. He says, hey y'all, have you found this too? If, if not, it's available. It's available to you. Okay, Paul, knowing Christ beats everything. We get it. But how does he explain what that means? 
Let's keep reading to find out. First, or second, he says, knowing Christ means a life in Christ and like Christ. Look at verse 9 and 10 and 11. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so knowing Christ means a life in Christ. You know, Paul puts it this way, that I may be found in him. Found in him. Being found in Christ means we are secure. It means we're safe. It means we're held. We're, we're home. Our core identity is rooted in him. You know, Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His identity, his security is rooted somewhere. It's rooted in someone. And Paul says that that means we are not building our own righteousness. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You know, he contrasts a righteousness that is self-made and law-guided to one that is from God through faith in Christ. A righteousness that is a wrapped-up, bows-on-it gift from God. For Paul, it's clear elsewhere that he, he knew the law served a good purpose. That before Christ, it acted as a nanny, a guardian. But when Christ came, he fulfilled it. He completed it. He filled it up. But it's easy to become self-righteous when the law is what is guiding your life. And that's what Paul became. He became a self-righteous, law-loving Pharisee. He loved God's word, but he felt propped up by it. You know, I checked the boxes. And I, I mean, if you're able to check the boxes, then why wouldn't you feel proud? Paul says that such righteousness obtained through law-keeping in comparison with the righteousness that's a gift from God through faith in Christ, it's garbage. And more than that, it's just a bummer life in comparison. A righteousness that is from God through faith in Jesus leads to a secure life, but also a life of faith. You're secure, you're safe, but you're also going out in faith, not knowing what's ahead, but knowing that the one who's holding you will guide you. And so it's that dual reality of a secure life of adventure. Not a life of, of safety and I just got to stay in these, this, you know, I got to check all these boxes. No, no. Just like Abraham, when he said, Abraham, come, 
Come away from your parents. Come away from your family and come with me to a land that I'll show you. God didn't tell him where he was going to take him. He just said, come with me. That's security. But it's also adventure because you don't know what's ahead. The only box to check is, am I trusting Jesus with all that I am? That's the only box. And when you slip up, when you, and you will, you can remember this, that you were never building your own righteousness to begin with. You know, sometimes when, we're, when we struggle with habitual addiction or sin or, or things that are tripping us up over and over and over again, You know, we try to put as much time between us and the last time we screwed up as possible. But a lot of times when we're in that mindset, what we feel like we're doing is building a house of cards. Every day, all right, I got got one day, I got one day, I got one day. But then if we slip up, it feels like everything comes crashing down. But no, your righteousness, your standing with God is a gift. He created it. You didn't. And so when we do slip up, we go, well, I know that I wasn't building it in the first place. But knowing Christ also means a a life like Christ. So we have a life in Christ where we're found in him, but we also live a life like Christ. Living as he lived. Paul says it right there. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So it's not just our standing with God that matters, like in fancy terms. It's not just our justification that matters, but our sanctification. You know, justification is when the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not guilty. Declared righteous. Christ's righteousness clothes you. When God looks at you, he sees his son. That's justification. But that's not the only thing that happens when we're found in Christ. Sanctification happens. Being made like Christ. And that happens when the Spirit empowers us to live a life like Jesus lived. And for Paul, the goal isn't just to become more like Jesus. The goal is Jesus. This relationship is his goal. That I may know him. And that's not just mental knowledge, you know, theoretical knowledge. That is experiential knowledge. Like you know your closest friend. And Paul gives us two ways here that we can press into this knowing of Christ. One of the ways you'll like, and the other you won't. But it makes total sense. If you want to get to know a person, you join them in what they do. You know, many of you know Cindy. You want to get to know Cindy? Go for a hike with her. You want to get to know Travis? Where are you? Where'd he go? (laughs) Play basketball with him. See? 
That's how you get to know. And so, what are the two aspects that define the way Jesus lived? Well, he was incredibly powerful. He did many signs and wonders. He healed people. He touched people who were dead, and they became alive. And yet, he experienced much pain. You know, he lived empowered by the Spirit. Many of you remember his baptism story. He was baptized by the John the Baptist, and the Spirit came upon him and then immediately drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by the enemy, and the Spirit never left him. He empowered him to do what he did. And yet he also suffered. And you know, Jesus' life wasn't, you know, 33 some odd years of power and then one week of suffering. No. Isaiah tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If we want to get more acquainted with Jesus, if we want to know Jesus more intimately than we do now, these are the two things we need to embrace. Power and suffering. You know, the first one is what we like. We like to focus on on that. It's great. (laughs) The power of his resurrection, Paul says. You know, Paul makes it clear elsewhere that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is none other than the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God raised Jesus' body from the dead. And so when Paul says the power of his resurrection, we can't help but think, I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who blew everything wide open when he came and he indwelled, he came upon people who were not Jewish as they became Christians. He became the proof that the blessing of Abraham, that God promised to him way back in the beginning when Israel was only in one person, the blessing of Abraham was going to come on the nations. And the Holy Spirit was the proof. You can ask Peter. You know, it took him three tries to understand this. God had to tell him over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit's for the Gentiles too. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to walk near to God. He's the one who convinces us that we are loved by God. He's the one who gives us gifts and empowers us to do what he wants us to do for Jesus' glory, not for our own. He is the Spirit of Christ who is with us always, even to the end of the age, as Jesus promised when he gave us the Great Commission. But power in life, although important, that's only one aspect. That's only one part of the Christ-like life. To grow more acquainted with Jesus, we also embrace pain and suffering. You know, this is no fun. Pain and suffering, no fun. Paul didn't like it either. There was a moment when he begged God, there's this thing in my life, it's a thorn in my flesh, take it away, please. He asked three times. And three times Jesus said, no, 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 
my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul makes it clear that it is suffering that produces more Christ-likeness in us. Why? Because Christ suffered. That's who he is. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You want to know Jesus? Lean into your pain. When you suffer, when you go through true and real pain, this is the beauty of Christianity. You can take heart because you're receiving an opportunity to get closer to Jesus. Paul reminds us that, you know, just like we learn in chapter 2, what leads to resurrection? Crucifixion. This is the way. This is the way of Jesus. Jesus invites us to embrace our suffering, not as an end in itself. You know, we don't sign up for suffering. It's just going to come. It's going to come for all of us in some way, shape, or form, especially if you're faithful to Jesus for your whole life. But also, you just don't know when. You don't know how. You don't know where suffering is going to come from, but it's going to hit you like a Mack truck. And so we don't embrace suffering as an end in itself, but we embrace it because it's through suffering, it's through pain that we become more acquainted with him and therefore more like him. Have you noticed when you hang out with someone, you become more like them? You start saying their, their little weird things they say. When you lean into your pain as a way to grow more close with Jesus, you'll become like him. These two aspects of the Christ-like life, they're not separated. They're interrelated. Power and suffering. You know, we can go through suffering with confidence and joy because of the power of Christ's resurrection. Because of the hope of Christ's resurrection. Not just in our hope for the future, but also the power that's at work in our lives through the Spirit. But we also need to remember that even though we're given access to the very same power in the person of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that doesn't mean we won't experience pain and suffering. You know, Jesus promised that we will. So we embrace the power, but we also acknowledge the suffering. And we need to remember this when, when other people start to suffer. You know, sometimes when we're on a high with the power of God, we're like, oh, how dare you suffer? That's not for you. Let me fix this. No. We need to remember that when we try to fix other people's experiences of pain and suffering. You know, suffering doesn't take all the wind out of our sails because of the power of the Spirit. But the power of the Spirit doesn't remove the storms of life. So we have to hold these. Power, suffering, spirit, pain. And we don't, we don't do it feeling like, ah, oh, I wish things were different. Although, of course, we do. But we do it because this is the life Jesus lived. He lived the life of just unheard of power. 
and authority, confidence, joy, fulfillment. But he also lived a life of terrible pain. So Paul ends his description of life in Christ and like Christ by telling us where we're headed. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And for Paul, that's, that's where he, all his, that's where he put uh, all his, uh, it's, everything for him is in that basket. The resurrection. This is coming. A new body. A body like Jesus was given. One that will not die. And so it's only when he arrives, and that's the word, attain, is arrive. Only when he arrives at this resurrection from the dead that he will finally stand physically, face to face, with his goal, who is Jesus. And so that leads us to Paul's last point here, that knowing Christ means Better days are always ahead. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the challenging but beautiful reality of this personal relationship with Jesus' gospel is that there is never any settling. Settling is not allowed. Even when you are serving God with your whole life and being productive for him, just like Paul was, there's no settling. There's no thinking, huh, I've got this. You know, it's great to take a pause and reflect and celebrate what God has done in you and through you. Absolutely. But we don't stop there. I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's like a couple, and it's like a couple taking a selfie. What a beautiful moment, right? Beautiful. But imagine after taking the selfie, the guy settled. He's like, wow, this is an amazing selfie. You know? I don't think we need to hang out anymore. I'm just going to look at this selfie of us. It's beautiful. I don't think it could get any better. (laughs) That's insanity. But sometimes that's what we do with our relationship with God. We say, God, wow, you're awesome. What beautiful times we've had. What work you've done in my life. I think I'll call it now. I'm good. I'm just going to stare at this God and me selfie for the rest of my life. No. What that only shows is that the goal the whole time wasn't a relationship. You know, we're not building something that we can look at and glory in. We're just getting to know a person. 
And that won't ever be over. And with any good relationship, the best days are yet to come. That's how it was even for Paul the Apostle. And so he says, no, I have not arrived yet. I'm not perfect. But it's worth pressing on. Why? For Paul, it's because Jesus has made him his own. You see what he said there? He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So all this effort we are putting in is just a response to the effort that Jesus has already expended on our behalf. That word, made made it my own or, or made me his own, it means apprehended, like in motion. It's like someone's running and you grab them. That's what it means. It's like a sudden apprehension. So Paul is pressing on in order to fully experience all that this relationship has in store for him. But really, it's Jesus who's apprehended him in the first place. You know, John says it in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Our love is simply a response. And that word press on is the same word as verse 6, persecute. Isn't that funny? But it shows the urgency. Paul says, I know that further intimacy with Jesus is available, and I am going to hunt it down. That's how after it he is for this relationship. But then he switches metaphors. He switches to the metaphor of a race. He says, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's the setting. God's in heaven. And at his right hand is Jesus Christ. And God has the whistle. And he blows it and he says, Okay, Paul. Here it is. Here's your prize. Him. Jesus. Run here. That's why Paul doesn't settle. He says, I'm not done until I'm standing face to face with Jesus. In heaven. And so Paul, like any good runner, he doesn't look to the right or left while he's sprinting, but he strains forward. You've seen the, the slow-mo videos of, of the, the Olympics when it's, you know, it comes so close. And so the people are like straining themselves forward to cross the line. That's the image. All his accolades, all his accomplishments, all his sin, all his brokenness, he leaves behind. Always looking in one direction. This is Paul's one thing. That's what he said. One thing I do. For Paul, this is the good life. This is it. And then he's inviting us to join him. So, To review, the gospel is a person. He's the Savior and Lord of all. According to Paul, knowing him beats everything by a long shot. Paul was incredibly productive and incredibly gifted. 
But this is what he craved. The deep well of this relationship with Jesus. This experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what gave him what he needed. You you need strength to carry on. This is what can get you there. This deep well. Is Jesus your one thing? Maybe he's become just one of the things in your life. A good thing, no doubt, but not the thing. So as we close today, I want to do something a little different. I want to make an invitation to any who are desiring to go deeper with God today. You know, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're intimately involved in this. You know, the the Father's the one who makes the call. The, The Spirit's empowering the response, and Jesus is the prize. So whether you're a Christian or not this morning, I want to give us all a chance to ask God to help us go deeper with him today. And so go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. First, I want to I invite all of us Christians in this room this morning. I want to invite you to, this morning, to just acknowledge your desire and your need to go deeper with Jesus. And to do that, go ahead and stand up. Amen. Let's keep our eyes closed. So for those, for those who have been lacking feeling close to Jesus, God, I pray that you would show them what a deeper relationship with you would look like for them. We all have unique and specific relationships with you. How do you want to grow deeper with each person here today? I pray that you would show them. Give them, just like we need creativity to think of things to do for our mom on Mother's Day. Give us creativity for things we can do, activities we can engage in, rhythms we can uh, implement to grow deeper with you. Not as a, a way to, to gain status or, or to gain favor with you, but as ways to spend time with you. Ways to, to grow more in love with you. Please give each person that, that creativity to know what they can do to grow closer to you. And I pray for those who are enduring suffering right now. I pray that, God, you would show them how you want to use their pain to bring them closer to you. Lord, in the only way that you can, I pray that you would show them exactly what you want to do in this season, in this storm, to bring them more fully into the intimacy you desire with them. And for those who are distracted by other things, God, show them the surpassing worth of this treasure. Help them not to take this relationship with you for granted. 
Help us, Lord, who are distracted by many voices, many notifications, many people, many needs, many duties. Help us to carve out the necessary time we need to be with you because you're worth it. That knowing you surpasses everything else. In comparison, it's complete and total garbage because of how good you are. Please show us that, Lord. And for all of us, for every Christian in this room this morning, I pray that you would fill each of us to a measure previously unheard of with your Holy Spirit. Firstly, that we might know the power of your love for us. And that we might know we are accompanied. No matter how alone we feel we are, we are never alone because of your Spirit who dwells within us. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. We expect wonderful things because of it. All for the purpose of becoming more like you and ultimately knowing you, Jesus. So please fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.